Hello, this is Tree Lady Talks, and I'm Sharon Durdent Hollenby. All music and production is by Noel Durdent Hollenby, and all views expressed by me or the interviewees are entirely personal. Welcome to Professor Paul Chatterton. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, it's delightful to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I've had a great time looking at your career and all the things you're involved in, but perhaps you could just start off by letting us know what is your current role and what are some of the extra things that you're involved in? Sure. Well, listen, I'm a geographer by by passion and by trade, and, and I, I'm currently Professor of Urban Futures in the School of Geography at the University of Leeds. And um, I'm a kind of serial social entrepreneur, really. I, I, I just want to kind of use my knowledge to make a better world. So over the course of my career, I've been writing and researching on sustainable cities, new models for uh, governance and democracy, how cities can change for the better in terms of their energy, food, nature systems. And most recently, I've been captivated by how we can respond to the climate emergency. I live in a straw bale house. About 10 years ago, I got together with a group of people. We bought an old school site in Leeds where the school had been demolished, a Victorian school, and we, we built 20 straw bale houses and a common house. Um, it's, it's, it's owned and run by, by us as a cooperative. It's largely car-free, beautiful, net, natural places for the kids to play. It's called Lilac Grove. You could see our website, lilac.coop. I really enjoyed looking at Lilac on the website. I love that model for people living communally and eating together twice a week, ignoring the fact there is a lockdown right now. But that idea of building communities amongst nature in a completely carbon neutral way, I think is a way forward. So you actually live there yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we, we've all thrived as people, even in the pandemic, you know, it's given us opportunities to be outside more and, 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 and have socially distanced conversations. And I think we've really valued the green space that we've built around us. And just to see our children thriving and being safe and being able to run out of their houses without the threat of kind of cars and, and you know, grey space. And so so it's been really great. And, on you know, being connected to nature, we've got on-site allotments. We've got a, a beautiful, sustainable urban drainage pond, um, which is the centre of the community. So it plays, a, it plays a role in terms of water catchment, but also, you know, a real beautiful place to gather around. That's so good for children's education. And um, we've just interviewed Dinah all about play, almost rewilding play. And uh, the model of Lilac very much is in keeping with that. And beyond that, if, if Lilac wasn't enough, you're involved with Leeds Community Homes as well. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I helped set up Leeds Community Homes um, on the back of Lilac with some other uh, housing colleagues in the city. We really wanted to say, look, setting up these individual projects, not enough, really. We want to replicate them. We want to see more housing cooperatives, more collaborative housing, more low carbon self-managed housing. So got together with four or five people, set up Leeds Community Homes, and now they've gone the wonderful aspirations um, to set up hundreds of cooperative, collaborative co-housing projects. And, we, you know, we raised, we did a share offer when we first started. And we, we raised £360,000 from people of Leeds who wanted to invest in us to start to buy our first low-carbon collaborative houses. Wow. So and that, the journey's still going on now. And I think we've really caught people's imagination because people want to live differently now, don't they? They do. And, um, you know, we spoke earlier just before this formal interview about all the, the multiple crisis we've got at the moment, um, something that we've discussed a lot on our podcast. But how do you see it? How do you see the crisis at the moment and what can we do about it? 
the big crisis, the pandemic, is obviously engulfing all our energies and attention. But I think coming out of that, it's a real moment to think about how we can build back better, isn't it? Because, you know, this wave is huge, but, you know, it's probably nothing compared to the wave that's going to hit us in terms of the converging climate, social and nature emergencies. I mean, there's going to be a lot of people who've struggled through the pandemic, um, aside from COVID itself, but the isolation. I think I think that the pandemic has highlighted to so many people that they're feeling isolated in urban areas. Um, and that there's a lack of green space because it's the immediacy of green space that's so important, isn't it, during lockdown? And I really share your view that this needs to be a reboot. Absolutely. And I think we've really valued a number of things, haven't we? Local goods and services, local green space, just being able to cross the local road, you know, having active travel neighbourhoods, right, where we can cycle and walk, having great independent shops where we can get to, having a, a good green space at the bottom of the road, having good co-working facilities, having more generous space in our homes, having you know access on our doorstep, all these kinds of things. Are, you know, and look at all the great ideas that are surfacing now, which I think are going to stick in the next few years. People talking about a four-day week, 15-minute neighbourhoods, biodiversity corridors, low-traffic neighbourhoods, all these things have suddenly come out of nowhere. Yeah. Their time has come, and I think we're going to live in, live in a very different place in a few years. And many of these new ideas, they coexist so happily together. The idea of better pedestrian and cycleways coexist really nicely with improving biodiversity corridors. You know, the two can go hand in hand and sustainable urban drainage systems and the way that trees can be planted to create avenues and pathways. And, and that helps people build communities, doesn't it? It all links together. It's just when we stop thinking of the car as king and we start thinking about how people actually interact, it's it's very exciting. I think, you know, in my own city, Leeds, which was motorway city of the 70s, we're trying to reverse out of that now with a really bold transport vision. And I think we need to reallocate urban space in a different way. So look how we devote land in cities. And I think we need, in, instead of cars, we need greenery and trees, right? And I think really simple but mass- and really rapid reallocation. So rather than those arterial retail packs that are popping up all over the place, those anonymous places, which many a league have vacant already, right? Yeah, that's right. We need, you know, we need new, you know, floodland areas. We need new biodiversity reserves. We need new um, afforestation schemes in them. And I think that's going to be a real challenge to those people who typically invest in cities. Do you think there is enough appetite for this? How can it be market-led? You know, think of private developers or will it be policy-led or will it be a combination of both? Does it need to start from government policy down through to local policy, setting design guides locally for private developers to implement? How do you think this might become a realisation? We'll need more local powers. So most cities and regions don't have enough powers over over planning. And I think we need we need the, the new mayoral authorities, and especially the smaller towns and cities in, in Britain to have more powers. That will give them an appetite to set uh, and an ability to set tighter, tighter bars and regulations for developers who, who need to be clear about what we expect as communities. And then there needs to be a shift in incentives and subsidies. Incentives and subsidies tend to be pushed towards fossil fuel infrastructures, you know, mainly car-based activities. So the incentives need to be pushed away from that towards um, neighbourhood people-centred activities, and that's where we're going to see the action. And you've written a civic plan for climate emergency with four action areas. Could you just take us through that briefly? 
About 18 months ago, when lots of municipalities were declaring climate emergencies, I wanted to offer a bit of momentum because lots of people said, oh, I'm going to declare a climate emergency. And it's like, well, what does that actually mean in practice? You know, what are we actually going to do differently and rapidly? Because if we have only got 10 years to get to zero carbon, we need to fundamentally change the development model of cities, right? Uh, and I pinned it down to four things. So the first thing was a car-free city. You know, not twiddling around with a few more cycle lanes, a bit more walking, maybe maybe a tram. This is a fundamental shift away from the motor age, right, which has plagued our cities and brought a whole basket of negative consequences. Um, and then the other big thing was a nature city, or what I call a bio city, right? And this is not just, you know, a, a few nice green spaces, another park. This is a really new relationship between humans and nature because we are interconnected animals, after all, who depend on our natural systems. We are, we are part of the natural world. And how do we bring that into the city? How do we create a biophilic city and fundamentally transform the urban environment to reflect nature? And I think that's a real challenge for us humans, isn't it? It's a real challenge because it's really quite different to what we're looking at and our notions of order and tidiness. The idea of streets being well-maintained really is contrary to this idea of a biophilic city. I've been speaking to Cecil and Johan from Nature Based Solutions about their vision, which is exactly the same, and, and some ideas for, for a new city in Denmark. It is radically different, but I think it's a matter of education as well, not just formal education but in terms of the public consciousness to to know what that might look like. And I think we've got all the knowledge out there. This is a matter of implementation and, and also more control of assets and resources. So we, so we have more places to do this stuff in. So we've got, you know, rewilding, urban agriculture, nature-based solutions, water-centric design. We, we, know, we know all this stuff. We just need more powers and more resources to be able to reconfigure cities so every developer has to take this on right has to be a net zero nature friendly building and place surrounding it as well and i also think there needs to be a fresh way of assessing development my work as a boroculturalist in the construction industry mainly they're mainly my clients we're really looking in in cities i'm, I'm in london i'm afraid i'm going to be london centric now forgive me it's just where i live and really looking at the true impacts of development on a site, looking at canopy cover, ecosystem services, and projecting that forward in time over 40 years. And that's the work that we're doing because we need to move beyond the standard ecology and arboricultural and landscape surveys to look at something holistically so that we can achieve a betterment you know, in terms of tree cover, um, ecology, biodiversity, etc. But I also feel that this needs to get out there to the public. I think the public have a great sympathy with wanting, say, trees are very easy to understand, but having something that is more natural looking, we've got to, we've got to really get that out there on mainstream media, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. And you're right in terms of um, um, what, what we measure matters. And I think we really need to change that. Um, and shifting to social and natural value, I think is going to be really, really important over, you know, just the kind of like endless grind of gross domestic product, more and more output in the economy, more and more growth. And, and where is this growth leading us? You know, mm. it's not leading to more happiness. It's not leading to more human fulfillment. It's not leading to more human flourishing. I think a lot of it is about people's individual stories as well. And I think that really touches people's hearts. 
I was speaking to um, Yvonne Lynch, who carried out some work in Melbourne where um, people could send an email to their street tree. And it's, it's an outpouring of love letters to trees. And I think that it's a combination of measuring in whatever um, finite thing you're measuring, but also stories leading to policy change. Our disconnection from nature is really corrosive because... If, we're not, if we can't get into nature and touch it and be with it, then we can't understand it. We can't build up a, a love or a desire for it. And therefore, we won't be interested in protecting it. So I think the story of the modern city is one of disconnection. There, there is green, green space, quite difficult to get to. And if you don't get to it, if you don't spend time in it, if you don't dwell in those green spaces, you don't care for them. And then they disappear. So going back to the civic plan for climate emergency, we've touched on two of your action areas. What are the other two? Creating a zero energy city and creating what I call a common city. So the zero energy city is really where we have a renaissance of of community energy, community renewable providers. Um, Because think of the city, it's this bloated fossil fuel entity, right, which depends on this high high throughput of of coal, oil and gas. And I think we need to unshackle ourselves from that model. At the same time, unleash a civic energy revolution, which will create an untold amount of green jobs. So again, we know all the things we need to do. We just need to shift the subsidies and incentives to that model. And then the last one is a bit count. It's not directly about kind of climate or nature, but for me, it's a fundamental building block. I call it the common city. We live in a very uncommon city. We live in cities where we're disconnected from the way they run, from the planning system, from the economy, right? Which is feels out of control. It feels uncommon. And the common city is full of. Uh, participatory budgeting, um, citizens' assemblies, community consultations, where people start to take back control and are able to steer the future of their localities. So that's what would bring us together. And that's for me, is at the heart of it, because we, given the right resources and given the right level of empowerment, people can lead this change. You're a professor and you're running the first course in MSC in Sustainable Cities. Wow, what could we learn on that course? Yeah, so that's right. So in the Faculty of Environment where I, I work, um, my, my colleague with my colleague Steve Hall, a couple of years ago, we set up this, this master's course in Sustainable Cities. I mean, you know, there are kind of similar courses around the world, but ours is really different. You know, it's a real practitioner-based approach where we wanted to not shy away from the big challenges. So we foreground the climate emergency and we foreground kind of like, you know, the social challenges which cities face. And we say, look, we need to fundamentally change the systems that make cities work. So we look at energy, we look at housing, we look at transport, we look at nature. We try to train a new generation of sustainability practitioners who are going to know the challenges and have the skills and a new leadership approach who are going to take this on. And we've already seen it. Our two years of students are out there doing car-free campaigning. They're doing reports for ecological housing. We, we see them popping up all over the place now. And we have a great international cohort, people from China, Africa, Latin America. So for me, it's been really, really exciting to know there's this growing community of people who are going to take this on. So you've also written Unlocking Sustainable Cities. That's right. That was a recent book that I wrote with Pluto Press. Um, the great thing about that, I really enjoyed writing it. I wanted to write a quite accessible book. I've got a website version of it as well. You can Google that, Unlocking Sustainable Cities. And really, I go through those uh, different areas. And how do we create a car-free city? How do we create what I call this bio city? How do we create this common city? For me, there's a central narrative to the book. How do we lock down what harms? And how do we unlock what allows us to flourish? So this is a twin process of locking down and unlocking. 
So you've got to do them both because if you just lock down, you just kind of get angry and you're shouting and resisting. But if you're just unlocking, you could kind of fall into naivety and not really stop the things that are harming you. It might be fossil fuel, fossil fuel pollution. It might be corporate power. It might be political negligence. So I think we need to work on many different fronts. And that's what I tried to do with unlocking sustainable cities. And at the end of it, I talked about the things that are really going to make cities change or what I call um, a breakaway coalition. So we need local authority officials, business leaders, university researchers, and we need civic leaders all to get together and say, look, I'm not going to do my day job like I've always done it for the last 20, 30 years. I'm not just going to replicate the status quo. I'm, I'm going to push back at my boss. I'm going to say, look, we have to do things differently. We have to do things differently because what I'm doing doesn't make sense anymore. I know the challenges and what I'm doing doesn't meet those challenges. And that's what a breakaway coalition is. And if we can get more and more people to join a breakaway coalition in their locality, we're going to have safe, beautiful, sustainable places to live in the future. And finally, Paul, what's your dream scenario? So look, I mean, to be honest, the dream scenario would be to work in a locality, I mean, probably my own because I don't really want to move, where I could get together and, and help lead that breakaway coalition of, of, of local actors who is going to stimulate investment and excitement by major funders who could draw down some major money to turn the locality around. as a major experiment about how we could completely transform a locality. So visionary, I'd love to be part of a coalition of visionary local leaders who are going to say, we are going to make a car-free city, right, in 10 years' time. We are going to commit to insulating every single home. We are going to commit to completely bringing nature back into this city and get major investors so excited that money pours into that locality and everywhere else says, look what these people are doing. They're, they're making a future for that place that's really safe and exciting for its residents. So the residents don't just want the same old, same old, they actually want real change. Fantastic. What a great and exciting vision for the future. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. When I'm out on a walk With my tree lady talk I can tell you I'm in my